Doctoring Alliance. And here your host, Dandre Leyland. Doppelgangers, evil twins, duplicates, and dark reflections of the heroes have been a staple of science fiction television since the beginning of the medium. And whether these episodes explore the human condition or just an excuse for the actors and audience to have a little fun, they often result in the most memorable and well-received episodes of the series in question. Numerous variations on this theme have been played out over the years. Spider-Man met his own clone in the Nicholas Hammond-starring TV show of the 1970s. Captain Kirk met both his own twisted dark side and an evil mirror universe counterpart in the enemy within and mirror mirror both episodes of the original star trek and bruce willis phoned home in an episode of the 1980s twilight zone to have the phone answered by bruce willis one of my personal favorites was when but rogers met not one but two different clones of himself and taking our cue from that but rogers episode tonight's episode of palace isn't going to be all that deep I want to explore the fun and frolics of having a duplicate, be that technological in nature and played by a different actor, albeit a clone or otherwise, and thus allowing the star of the show to strut the stuff. Following that mandate, here are some of my favourite episodes of science fiction television that featured, for want of a better word, evil twins. And none of them have a goatee. Firstly, the six million dollar man had to contend with a number of deadly beasties over his five year run, from Bigfoot to death probes, but none more personal than Barney Miller, aka the seven million dollar man. The episode opens with Steve Austin, our titular bionic hero, played by Lee Majors, receiving his monthly checkup and being given a clean bill of health by Dr. Rudy Wells, here in the form of the second actor to essay the role, Alan Oppenheimer. Steve witnesses Rudy's nurse, Carla, pass a top-secret tape to Barney. And at every turn, Steve finds that Rudy, his boss and bionic project coordinator Oscar Goldman, portrayed by Richard Anderson, and Carla herself lie to his face as he tries to find out what's going on. Steve ultimately discovers that Barney was a race car driver who was involved in a horrendous crash, and that Rudy and Oscar performed the same surgery on Barney that they did on Steve. Only Barney costs $7 million, as he has two bionic arms, as well as two bionic legs, but is sadly lacking the bionic eye. However, Barney is having trouble adjusting to the bionics, unlike Steve, as Barney is far too self-involved and narcissistic. I couldn't find a trailer for this episode, but here's how Barney describes being bionic. It's wild, Steve. It's wild. The Seven Million Dollar Man is an excellent episode of the series. Whilst I am a huge fan of this show in general, it's quite easy to see the demarcation point where it stopped being a family show aimed at everybody and became a kid's show. The show's dramatic quality slid down the toilet and actor Lee Majors started turning in performances so laid back as to be almost horizontal. This episode from early in season two has everybody still firing on all cylinders. Majors actually turns in a decent performance in this one, hearkening back to the pilot episode, giving us a Steve who isn't always right, a Steve Austin with doubts and fears and and anxieties. In other words, a real living, breathing character who an audience can sympathise with. Majors seems involved with the character and the script in a way he isn't in later episodes. Maybe that's because the script, by Peter Allen Fields, doesn't talk down to the audience, unlike later episodes, where the producers seemed deathly afraid of the audience having to do any thinking. We don't instantly learn of Barney's bionics, it's revealed slowly over the course of the first act, and then Barney's disintegration takes place slowly over the course of the second act. 
In addition to being a fun romp, this is also an extended character study, looking at what it takes to be a hero, the pitfalls of depression, second chances, and how a man who was brilliant learns how to deal with life when it passes him by. Barney is portrayed by Monty Markham, who chews up the scenery beautiful in his role, but also makes Barney's decline feel real and unforced. Markham is over the top in a way that Majors never was, but it works magnificently, even if he does wear an inordinate amount of guy liner. Markham was writer Martin Caden's choice to play Steve when his book Cyborg was adapted to the screen, and it would have been a completely different show, and probably not as successful. Majors is good-looking and unthreatening in that way that screen idols are. Markham looks like he'd tear your head off if he didn't get his morning coffee. Markham also doesn't look as physically imposing as Majors, but impresses by how many of his own stunts he does. Majors pats himself on the back a great deal in interviews for doing a lot of his own stunts, but he's doubled quite a lot in this episode, as opposed to Markham, who seems to do a great deal of his own fighting. Markham also does an excellent job of playing the highs of Barney's bionic euphoria and then the lows when he realises that he's in danger of having it all taken away and becoming a nobody again. Steve convinces Oscar to dial down the bionics so Barney can lead a normal life, but Barney isn't about to let that happen and flees, which leads to the moment we've been waiting for throughout the episode. Bionic Man versus Bionic Man. It's interesting to note that this episode has none of the usual bionic sound effects applied to Steve actions, although he does run in slow motion, as was a trademark of the show. The famous na 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 sounds are applied to Barney's actions, as Barney decides to destroy all the materials leading to the construction of the cyborg. The fight between he and Steve, despite being in 6 mil slow-mo, is not a campy endeavour, rather played as completely real and dangerous, and both Majors and Markham add reality by doing a lot of their own stunts in the climax. The lack of the usual na 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 sound effect adds to the feel of this being a down and dirty fight, and for once Steve is outclassed, and Majors plays it as if he's really under threat. The only thing that spoiled the scene was Majors' truly dreadful pink-crushed velvet suit, Seven Million Dollar Man is a great episode of this series, one of my favourites. Barney's bionics are dialed down at the end, but he would return in The Bionic Criminal, a third season episode which isn't as good as this, but still worth watching for Markham. The only thing lacking from this episode is that Majors doesn't get to play a bad guy, as Steve's doppelganger is a different actor. Lindsay Wagner, however, would get to play against herself for her evil twin episode. Wagner came to prominence on Six Mill, playing Jamie Summers, tennis pro and Steve's lover, who, after her own accident, was made bionic. She wasn't referred to as the Six Million Dollar Woman, as presumably the network were afraid this would make her sound like an expensive call girl. Summers was so popular she was brought back on Six Mill, even though she died, and then spun off into her own show. The bionic woman launched with a flurry of publicity, and in the UK, leapt right to the top of the ratings, being the most-watched drama series for the week of its debut, and allowing ITV to top the charts ahead of the BBC. Lindsay Wagner is an engaging actress, warmer than Majors, and it's her innate likability that made the show what it was. In this first season episode, Mirror Image, Jamie is taking a well-earned vacation in the Bahamas, but is struggling to get a tan, as her bionic limbs don't bronze. Unknown to her, Dr. James Courtney has, through the miracle of plastic surgery, turned Southern Belle Lisa Galloway into a duplicate of Jamie, with a mission to steal top-secret documents and, if necessary, kill Oscar Goldman. 
Meanwhile, Boomer from Battlestar Galactica, the 78-1, not the one who's now in Hawaii 5 is in the Bahamas trying to kill the real Jamie. There's no trailer for this that I could find, but here's a clip from the episode and the opening title theme. You've got to lose all of your southern accent, okay? Why not? Better. Pretty raunchy, huh? I guess it would be kind of hard to have a good time in Nassau knowing I'd have to come over to this. Pretty raunchy, huh? I guess it would be kind of hard to have a good time in Nassau knowing I'd have... Uh, no, uh, she uses more contractions, Lisa. Uh, to have instead of to have. The accent's good. Now try it again. But without that cigarette, Jamie Somers doesn't smoke. Come on. Oh, brother. Um, I guess it would be kind of hard to have a good time in Nassau, knowing I'd have to come home to this. Excellent. That gal must be crazy. If I was going to the Bahamas, last thing I'd be worried about is cleaning my house. <laughs> now, you've been working on her for two weeks. Voice, mannerisms, life history. Do you think you're ready, Lisa? Lisa? Oh. Who's Lisa? I'm Jamie Summers. Unlike Six Mill, Wagner gets to play a dual role and has a ball with the southern-accented Lisa. But there's the usual bionic hijinks to keep the kids happy, particularly a great scene where Jamie is given a burial at sea and uses her bionics to escape Davy Jones's locker. What's pretty great about this episode is that the fake Jamie is exposed in Act 2, allowing Jamie and Oscar to turn the tables on the bad guys, and this gives Wagner a chance to play Jamie, playing Lisa, playing Jamie, playing Lisa. Wagner is utterly charming in both roles, and you can see Jamie's influence on later TV characters from Buffy Summers, the surname similarity cannot be a coincidence, Veronica Mars and Sidney Bristow, and she's a much better role model for my young daughter than the vacuous Cardassians. There came a point where the Bionic Woman easily eclipsed its Big Brother show, and this is a good reason why. Even Anderson seems more animated and relaxed working with Wagner than he does with Majors, and the Bionic Woman has a feel of not taking itself too seriously, although the dramatic bits are played straight. The comedy is also understated, with Lisa being a smoker and Jamie not, so Jamie uses her bionics to waft out the cigarette, only to be offered another almost immediately. Chain smoking was obviously big in the 70s. 
Wagner's face is a small yet delightful comedy bit. Double cross becomes triple cross when Lisa escapes, and Jamie, now undercover as Lisa, is placed in danger. Wagner was great with facial expressions, something that plays up later when she meets Lisa's boyfriend, and he sticks his tongue down her throat. In the final scene, Wagner even manages to completely change how she holds her face to differentiate between Jamie and Lisa when they finally meet face to face, an impressive and subtle piece of acting. Mirror Image is a glorious romp and great fun. It's a lot more complicated than it seems, but writer James D. Parriott manages to keep it all easy to understand, even with duplicating Jamie's. And whilst it all gets a little farcical at the end, with both Jamie and Lisa affecting a Daisy Duke accent, it's a joy to watch. Lisa Galloway, like Barney Miller, would return to the Barnet Woman in a two-part sequel in the second season called The Deadly Ringer, which is every bit as fun as this episode. For some of the funniest reviews of The Bionic Woman, hell, of any television show you will ever read, I urge you to check out Betsy Dodd's Bionic Blonde website. And for more on both series, check out the truly excellent Cyborg's A Bionic podcast. More technological terrors now in Trust Doesn't Rust, a first season episode of Knight Rider. of Michael Knight and his supercar kit, Knight Rider launched David Hasselhoff's career and made the 1982 Pontiac Trans Am the car that 12-year-olds across the world wanted in middle age. In this episode, two drunken thieves break into the holdings of Knight Industries and steal the prototype for Kit, Car, the Knight Automated Roving Robot. Carr has none of Kit's programming for the preservation of human life and starts committing crimes at the behest of the two crims that stole him, Rev and Tony, tearing up the town in a series of daring robberies. Only Michael and Kit can bring Carr to justice. Michael, that car, it could have been my twin. It almost killed me. I am the night automated roving robot. How may I serve you? It is very dangerous for you and for Kit. I am warning you. Change course at once. I am not in control, car. Knight Rider was always a show that emphasised fun over logic, and to apply too much thought to an episode of this show is to do it a disservice. 
Stephen E. D'Souza writes a pretty tight episode with very little flap. We open with the stealing of car already underway, and are quickly brought up to speed as to who he is and where he came from. From that point forward, it's action all the way, pitting Trans Am versus Trans Am in a series of cool stunts and fast-paced action. Carr, voiced by Optimus Prime himself, Peter Cullen, is a lot more menacing than the avuncular William Daniels as Kit, and the yellow plate that represents his speech carries more ominous overtones than the red one Kit has, which is weird given that red means danger. Carr takes everything literally, and much humour is derived from this, despite the fact that Carr is played as a serious adversary throughout. It's very strange to watch these shows now and see that they were more than capable of sending themselves up and having a sense of humour about themselves, yet could still do dramatic scenes without being all meta and mocking. There are even some decent attempts at characterisation, with Tony being depicted as a man without conscience and Rev being more considerate. It's a genuine surprise, therefore, when Tony kills Rev, especially with the wonderfully blackly comic line that Carr has asking Tony, why did you deactivate the Rev? The writing escalates the action well. Kit is installed with a laser to take Carr out, but both Kit and Carr have to be driving at each other whilst it works. Then Carr kidnaps Kit's mechanic, Bonnie Barstow, adding another level of danger to the tale. And whilst I'm not saying this is Byzantine plotting, it's a taut episode of a normally anodyne show. Part of the fun, of course, are the mistakes. At various points in the show, both Kit and Carr's front scanner breaks or isn't working at all. Carr's initial rampage is all stock from other episodes, one of which had the Trans Am suddenly covered with silver stars, for some reason, and there are shots of Michael still clinging to Carr's roof long after he's jumped free. The best goof, though, is in the conclusion. Carr is destroyed at the end when Kit is forced to go head-to-head with Carr, and Carr's self-preservation kicks in, leading him to avoid the clash and zoom off a cliff. Suddenly, a black Trans Am changes into a white station wagon thanks to the use of poorly applied stock footage. But all this just adds to the charm of these kinds of shows. We'll ignore how Carr thought driving off a cliff was a good representation of self-preservation. Stunt work is mostly pretty damn good, and if the episode doesn't really stress any real sci-fi ideas like the use of AI in society or how far we should go in our quest to build intelligent computers, well, that's because it's an episode of Knight Rider and not an Isaac Asimov novel. The acting is pretty much what you would expect. I have a soft spot for Hasselhoff, who makes the relationship between a man and his car thoroughly believable, which is an acting feat in and of itself. A, quote, better actor probably couldn't have pulled this off half as well as he does. Stu Phillips delivers an excellent score as well, giving Carr his own theme. This ultimately is what it is. An episode of a show that wasn't high art, but not everything has to be high art. It's not great sci-fi, but it's a fun episode of a fun show. Knight Rider would, over its four-season run, do every single bad TV cliché, including amnesia and even more evil twins. Carr, despite being destroyed here, would return in the third season episode Kit vs. Carr, even having a paint job as consistency never was Knight Rider's strong point. Hasselhoff would get his own evil twin, complete with goatee, when we would learn that Wilton Knight, the man who developed Kit, had a biological son named Garth Knight, and Hasselhoff gets to chew the scenery on the two occasions that he popped up, Goliath and Goliath Returns. Speaking of fun, our next technological terror is a rival for the Mach 1 Plus attack helicopter... Wolf and its daring pilot, Stringfellow Hawk. 
When Archangel, Alex Code, confronts Hawk and tells him that a Santini Ur chopper last night robbed a military train stealing Hellfires, Copperheads and other weapons applicable to use by Erwolf, Hawk finds himself accused of treason. It turns out that Harlan Jenkins, played by the wonderfully named Wings Hauser, was a designer along with Charles Moffat on the Erwolf project, and is now pilot of Erwolf 2, a duplicate and alleged improvement over the original. Jenkins stole the equipment to arm his own Erwolf. Apparently he was going to repeat history and sell Erwolf 2 to a foreign power, but only after his ego has been assuaged and he's beaten Hawk and Erwolf in Ur-to-Ur combat. Here's the trailer. The man who built Airwolf 2 is the same man who built Airwolf 1. Next on Airwolf. They've got another Airwolf. It's impossible. Hook will come for her. We'll take care of it. The talk is over. It's proof time. Put up or shut up. Just you and me, Hawk. Airwolf to Airwolf. Land that thing now. Well, I'm still in the mood to let you. Wolf was science fiction only in the sense that the titular chopper was a futuristic bit of kit, just like Knight Rider and Streethog, and largely its plot stayed away from more overt sci-fi elements. But in addition to being an evil twin episode, Erwolf 2 has a laser as part of its armoury. Not much is made of this, it's just another weapon in the Erwolf armoury, but it takes the plausible technology of the Erwolf helicopter and amps it up into a vaguely more science fiction world, especially in 1985. The script has to jump through a few hoops, as well as ignore its own continuity to work. The pilot episode established that Erwolf was so sophisticated, it needed at least two people to fly it, one in back to bring up the weapons and turbos and operate the sophisticated computers, and one pilot up front. Not only does Erwolf 2 not seem to need another pilot, but Hawk pilots Erwolf alone for the climax. And, of course, the reason we are watching this is its climax. As usual, Erwolf is essentially built around its mano-a-mano ending, and the evil twin stuff is largely an excuse to pit Erwolf against Erwolf, just like Carr was an excuse to have two Trans Ams duke it out in downtown LA. By this point, the series had abandoned all of the subtext and political intrigue of its early episodes, and had become a more domesticated series, with Hawk reduced to solving family disputes and internal problems. Erwolf was an expensive show, but was never a rating smash. As such, network interference was constant, and they toned down the show over the first two years, added a female character, and even at one point requested the removal of Archangel. Add to this the dysfunctional lifestyle of its star, Jan Michael Vincent, a far cry from the easygoing and relaxed Tom Selleck on Magnum, and creator Don Belisario quit the show. Season 3 was retooled to be just an action show. It was still a pretty good action show, and the final confrontation is exciting and well shot, and there is still at least attention paid to character. Hawk kissing Santini as he steps into Erwolf to fight Jenkins was a lovely acknowledgement that this is essentially father and son. As per the formula of a usual Erwolf episode, Hawk boards Erwolf at the 42 minute mark, and after paying some lip service to allowing Jenkins to step down, he blows him straight to hell. Because that's what Hawk did. Every week. How Hawk brought the weapons to Burr without Santini, how he blew Erwolf 2 up at all, given it was supposed to be as powerful as Erwolf, and why he noshes down on a meal of roast pig at the end when he's been depicted as a vegetarian, are all questions best not asked. Next, another actor gets to strut his stuff in a dual role, because, let's be honest, no show discussing the evil twin concept would be complete without an episode of Star Trek. 
There is an embarrassment of riches when choosing episodes of Trek to discuss. Do we go with the original, with Mirror Mirror, or Enemy Within, or Whom Gods Destroy? Or do we choose one of Deep Space Nine's many Mirror episodes, if only to ogle the slinky Nana visitor? But it was Next Generation that ultimately gave us the most choices, given that the show established very early on that Android Data had an earlier prototype in lore. Yes, it's pretty much a retelling of the Knight Rider episode, complete with the faulty original having programming that considers self-preservation more important. One would have thought Data's creator, Dr. Noonien Sung, would have studied the work of Wilton Knight, but apparently not. Data Law was the first season episode, and was the first show to delve into Data's backgrounds and origins. Originally, Law was supposed to be a female android, until actor Brent Spiner thought it would be more fun to play a dual role. The episode's plot revolved around the Enterprise arriving at Data's home planet, Omicron Theta, only to find the planet a barren rock. They discover a secret cave, and inside another android, who looks exactly like Data. Here's the trailer. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Can this be another me? The discovery of Data's perfect android double. How much can you trust Data now? Leads to a deadly game of who's who. He's been hurt. This is very serious. Now, Data's evil twin plots to destroy the crew. Back off. Go! With the help of a lethal life force on Star Trek The Next Generation. One of the best written of the episodes covered in this show, this isn't just an excuse for fun and frolics, rather an exploration of Data as a character, and the first steps the show took to establishing he was more than a machine. Unlike the Knight Rider episode, this makes overt references to artificial intelligence and the inherent danger of creating a machine that can think. I do wonder what the logic was of creating two androids that are identical, however. As this is the first season, there are some cringe-worthy moments, such as Riker and LaForge being admonished by Picard for tiptoeing around calling Data a machine, but Riker at least redeems himself by being the first to realise that Law is a lot smarter than he's letting on. Spiner is given the first of many chances to show what a good actor he was, playing Law as subtly different and slimier than Data. The crew are incredibly naive in this episode, though. Tasha Yar, the security officer, even asks how much Data can be trusted now. And Picard calls Data out on where his loyalties lie, yet at no point do they wonder if Law can be trusted, or even treat him with suspicion. Wesley is so stupid, Law, dressed as Data, has a facial tick, and Wesley believes Law when he says that he's really Data, and has simply been practising to be more like Law. They give Law full access to the ship, offer him instructions on how the ship works, and let him roam around engineering unfettered. Of course, it's no surprise to learn Law is faulty and delivered the colonists to the crystalline entity that fed off them, a fate he now has planned for the Enterprise crew. However, even when Wesley points out that Law is up to no good, no one listens to him, and Picard is very stupid in not realising something is up. That said, director Rob Bowman uses some excellent camera angles and the final confrontation between Data and Law is well filmed. The episode is one of the better first season shows, although still a little rough around the edges in comparison to what it will develop into over its seven season run. Live action superhero shows love their evil twins and normally cloning is the method of choice for providing the storyline with a duplicate of its lead actor so they can ham it up slash show off their range, depending on the actor. 
On superhero TV shows, the lead is normally wearing a costume and mask, and this tends to cut down on costly split-screen effect. In a 1991 episode of The Flash, Twin Streaks, our hero, forensic scientist Barry Allen, played by John Wesley Shipp, finds himself cloned against his will by a genetics lab after they find a sample of his blood at a crime scene. All of this coincides with Barry's scientist friend, Tina McGee, played by Max Hedrum's Amanda Pays, warning Barry that he's in danger of burning out, given he's spending all of his time helping people. Sadly, I couldn't find a promo for this. Sorry, so you're just going to have to listen to the music. I love about The Flash is its set design. Whilst there are very definite 90s-isms to the her and fashions, the lead scientist with his floppy fringe and round glasses, for example, the neon colour palette, the art deco look to the buildings and the almost retro look to the cars married with the technology of the present and, in some cases, the future, gives this a Blade Runner-inspired feel, but this is no dystopian vision. This is more akin to the look of Batman the Animated Series, a show with which this has a lot in common, including Shirley Walker's excellent score. The writing is very strong in this segment. As with all good sci-fi, there are underlying themes of the responsibilities of science and individual responsibility, the moral implications of cloning and whether that clone has rights, and even the dangers of work-related stress. Barry is petulant and snappy due to tiredness, and this contrasts with his clone who, despite looking the same age as Barry, has the mental age of a four-year-old, and Ship has a ball playing both roles. There are a couple of missteps. When the Flash first confronts his clone, Pollux, he has his head handed to him, and Tina calls him Barry in a crowded park. Also, neither he nor Tina attempt to follow Pollux when he just wanders out of the park across the road to the scientists who made him, but this latter point would mean the episode would only be 20 minutes long. There is also a missed opportunity with Pollux's outfit. Instead of the Flash's red suit, the lab boys cook up a blue version, but how much cooler would this have been if the suit had been yellow? A literal reverse flash. There is also a cool touch in the middle of the show. Pollux finally realises his creators treat him like crap. He looks down and closes his eyes. When he tilts his head up and opens his eyes, the resolve on his face, it looks like his eyes flicker red. A subtle nod to the replicants in Blade Runner. I watched this a few times and I can't decide if it's a lighting trick or a deliberate touch, but either way it's pretty solid. 
Ship must be a method actor, as he's wearing the hearing aid thing he uses to listen to the police band all the way through the opening scene, even though it's not needed. A neat attention to character detail that Ship should be commended on. He's really good in this show, differentiating between Pollock's Barry, Tired Barry, and The Flash really well. And this show was very much ahead of its time, taking the comics and putting them on screen effectively in an era where this wasn't being done. As the episode progresses, Pollux flees, accidentally killing one of his creators, and makes his way to Star Labs to see Tina, having the same residual feelings for her that Barry does. From here, Pollux tries to piece together a life and ultimately meets his fate, taking a bullet for Barry. The ending, where Barry watches himself die, is actually quite affecting, and ties into the overall subplot of Barry burning his candle at both ends. This is a pretty good episode from the latter half of the series where the show really kicked it up a gear and became one of the best TV adaptations of comic ever. Whilst Amanda Pays could be a little stiff, the show, as a lot of comics adaptations do, rested squirrely on the shoulders of its lead and Ship was great in his dual role. A lot of people view this as a companion to the Batman and Superman animated series and they are correct to do so. It's as good as they are and one of the underrated gems in genre telly. As an evil twin episode, this pretty much ticks off the boxes. It's an exploration of humanity, a chance for the actor to do something different, and an entertaining watch for the viewer. Finally tonight, another actor gets to play a dual role in The Schizoid Man, a 1967 episode of The Prisoner. When it was decided that Patrick McGoon's magnum opus would not be a miniseries after all, other scripts were quickly developed to bring the episode count up. The original premise for this one actually ended up becoming Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling later in the run, but Magoon was intrigued by the idea of doing The Prison of Zender, even if ITC stablemate The Baron had recently done the same idea. In this episode, number two, this time played by Anton Rogers, decides to break number six's staunch individuality by creating a double of him and relabeling six as number twelve. Number twelve is then set to breaking himself. This kind of mind-bending messing with reality is something the prisoner did best, managing to keep the audience off balance and unhinged. The twist here is that McGowan is playing the duplicate, whilst the man we believe to be number six is the imposter. Leave it to the prisoner to make the confusing even more confusing. Throughout the show, number two constantly keeps six and the audience off guard by switching his allegiances between six and twelve. The special effects are, are okay in these scenes. There's a lot more shots of McGowan shot with himself than this than in, say, the next-gen episode, and he doesn't have the advantage of wearing a mask like John Wesley Shipp's double, so the split-screening is more pronounced. It's also really obvious on the DVD where they split the film, but these shows were never designed to be seen in HD, so the fact they hold up as well as they do is a testament to the production. Although in all the ways that matter, script and performances, this is still top draw entertainment. As a filler episode, there's no Potmerian footage at all, with the episodes all shot at Borum Wood, and it becomes clear as it progresses it's yet another attempt by the masters of the village to smash down Six's barriers and discover what they need to discover. However, Six is nothing if not single-minded, and whilst he may occasionally be down, he's never out, and the clue he needs to his own individuality is provided by a bruised fingernail, and armed with that knowledge that he's the real deal, he takes the fight back to his captors. The Schizoid Man isn't one of the best episodes of The Prisoner, but even lesser Prisoner episodes are light years ahead of most television. McGowan seems to relish his dual role, even if, according to behind-the-scenes reports, this was when he was starting to become obsessed with the series and becoming increasingly difficult to work with. 
As an evil twin episode, it manages to take the idea and flip it around, leaving the audience confused a lot of the time, especially if, then, as now, the viewer isn't paying attention. And it's a good addition to this subgenre. Whilst it offers no clues or answers to the overall questions raised by the show, it's a good standalone episode for people who've never seen the series and want to try it out. Be warned, though, this is a tad weird, but the show itself is progressively weirder. Evil twins and doppelgangers have provided the small and big screen with some of its best moments. And the technology has improved to a point where it's pretty seamless to blend the same actor in with themselves, as proven by Liv and Maddie on the Disney Channel, the central premise of which has the lead actress playing both lead roles. I'd love to hear some of your favourites, which you can do by emailing me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Okay, with that stuff out of the way, let's delve into the email bag and see who's emailed us this week. Jason Trenner is first out of the sack. Not spam! Palace of Glittering Delights, Dirty Harry Movies. Greetings, I found the episode to be an interesting review of the Dirty Harry Movies. Films I don't believe I've ever seen, but most of them sound to be worth viewing. Sudden Impact sounded like schlock impact, though. As for the view of Batman the Brave and the Bold, I wouldn't mind an overview, or would you want to review the fourth issue of all-new Batman Brave and the Bold? Trust me, you love that issue as Batman and Wonder Woman get married, and Talia takes it about as well as you'd expect. Look at that art working together to get you to mention things like Gogakia or Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. We just have a taste for people in colourful costumes fighting monsters and, well, anime and manga. I'm also glad that you got some enjoyment out of the Fantastic Four movie. Also, that terrible Gen X film that you mentioned was made by David Goya. Thomas DJ knows the guy who played Skin in that Gen X made-for-TV movie. I don't really have much to say about the Fantastic Four movie. Well, I, I, I covered ten minutes on it. That's probably as much as I had to say about it. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jason. Chris Franklin emailed in. Palace of Fantastic Callahan loved... Your retrospective on the Dirty Harry movies. My father was a massive Eastwood fan, so I was exposed to Clint's work at a very early age, mostly westerns, but I have a whole fondness for his modern set work, especially Harry. Can't really add much that you didn't cover other than say I agree with you that whilst the series as a whole is enjoyable, the first movie is a bona fide classic and its influence cannot be overstated. Oh, but Sandra Locke, was there ever a bigger coattail rider in cinema history? I think not. She's passable in the outlaw Josie Wales, mostly because her character of shy prairie girl isn't too much of a stretch for her. Sudden Impact has some great one-liners, but that's about all it's got going for it. I tend to forget the Enforcer even exists, other than knowing Tyne Daly was Harry's partner. The similarity in title to Magnum Force doesn't help, but all of this makes me want to re-watch the series, particularly the first movie, although I have that one committed to memory pretty well. Robinson shouldn't have gotten some plum acting roles out of his portrayal. Nowadays, he would have gotten an Oscar nod and some meaty character bits out of it at the very least. A great performance, to be sure. I never understood why some critics give Eastwood a hard time on his acting. The man sells whatever character he's playing. Yes, they're usually of a type. But the fact is, you never doubt he is those characters for one instant. That, to me, is acting. Yeah, Clint's one of those guys I'll watch in, in pretty much anything. Even Pink Cadillac. And Pink Cadillac wasn't very good. But he was in it, so I watched it. Uh, Chris concludes, so you finally got around to the Corman FF flick. You've entered a larger world of bad movies. Seriously, that movie has its heart in the right place, although technically superior, I can't say the same for the Tim Story films. Anyway, we're in agreement on pretty much everything concerning this film, so I'll only throw out that your pal Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner have gotten some good mileage out of the theme in their great podcast, Tales of the Justice Society of America. Take care. 
Chris. And Chris gets an award, though, for plugging somebody else's show in his email. Luke Giaconetta emailed in. If there's a new way, I'll be the first in line, but better work this time. Andy. Hey, man. Hey, Luke. Just wanted to drop you an email and give you a big thumbs up on your Dirty Harry Callahan episode of The Palace of Glittering Delights. Being born in 1980, I came to the character after the fact, discovering the films on home video. In fact, I still have all five of the VHS tapes which my father bought and then eventually passed on to me when he upgraded to DVD. My love of VHS as a format would make a great Palace-style podcast, but I digress. No, 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 don't digress! Do it, Luke! Do it! Love to hear you do a VHS podcast. In any event, Luke continues, I fell in love with these films in the 90s, the first two especially. Dirty Harry is one of the best films of the 1970s and does a great job of reflecting the grimy, cynical feelings of the decade. Magnum Force has been a favourite of mine since my first viewing on a Saturday morning in my living room. Both of these films spoke to me as a young man coming into his own thoughts and views on the world, concepts of law and order, justice, vigilantism and the rights of both victims and criminals. That these films, ostensibly just violent gunplay macho fantasies can provoke such thoughts in a young man is a testament to their quality. The Enforcer, Sudden Impact and the Deadpool vary in quality, but they make for an evening's diversion at the very least. Sudden Impact and a worthy sequel at best, The Deadpool. The sheer amount of knockoffs, rip-offs and wannabes that Dirty Harry spawned must rival Jaws. There's plenty of mega macho cop-on-the-edge B-movies from the 70s and 80s lurking out there, all of which owe their existence to Dirty Harry. The film series which, in my mind, pose up with the Dirty Harry films the best is the Death Wish series. The timeline's a little off as far as production, but they do seem to match up thematically. Harry is a cop on the edge of the broken system. Paul Cursor is a vigilante who works outside the system. It even gets to the point where in Death Wish 3 the cops have their hands tied so badly they turn to Cursey to help them clean up the streets. One of my all-time favourite head cannon crossovers is Harry Callahan hunting down Paul Cursey through the streets of San Francisco and inevitably joining forces in the final reel to administer justice. Sadly, it will never be. Keep up the great work, Luke. And you know, Luke, I, don't, I think I've only ever seen Death Wish 3. I don't think I've ever seen any of the other Death Wish films. I'd probably enjoy them, so, you know, I should give them a go at some point, shouldn't I? Anyway, that's it for the email sack. There are no more emails. Oh, no. What should I do? Oh, well, guess I'll have to wait till next time and see what the next episode brings. You can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com should you have something to say about today's episode. Because I always like hearing from you. Okay, we'll call it a day, though. I don't know what day. Probably Friday. And we'll see you next time. Bye.